You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Avram Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. You're blowing the dust off the old books. You're trying to find an ancient treasure. Yes, the antiquarian who has smicha has arrived. But first, you've heard me on this platform touting NRS, a great company whose many dedicated employees I get to see in action. NRS Pay has recently launched its new cost-cutting program called Cash Discount. The way it works is any vendor using NRS Pay Cash Discount has their sale register tabulating automatically a dual pricing, which offers customers a choice of a cash payment, which could result in an up to 4% discount over swiping their card. If your business meets the $18,000 a month threshold, there's absolutely no monthly fee to incur. NRS Pay Cash Discount makes it less expensive to accept credit cards, so you'll save money while helping your customers save at the same time. NRS is offering a time-limited deal right now on this state-of-the-art system. You'll get a free card reader with zero hidden fees, no long-term contract, and no early termination fee, which means you can switch your processing plan without penalty. NRS Pay is a proud part of the IDT Corporation that I've been associated with for over 10 years and has integrity built into its corporate DNA. I know its founder, its officers, and salespeople, and they truly stand by their product and will help you with live stateside-based customer service on any issue or question. Check nrspay.com for more information or call 833-289-2767. And now, the antiquarian. Clear the dust off. The antiquarian has Micha. Yitzchak Kolakowski is here with me, and both of us recognize that this episode will not drop until Hanukkah. And Hanukkah is definitely an antiquarian's feast. It's a place to really dig into the past and discover what was. The Gemara says in, in Shabbos, why is it that we make that bracha on Nera Hanukkah? Now, whether you say Shel Hanukkah or Ner Hanukkah, depends whether you're a Chabadzka or not, or from the Minigari. But the first part of the bracha says that we say that we have been commanded by God to do this. And of course, we know that there is no mitzvah in the Torah of Ner Hanukkah. And the Gemara in Shabbos, according to one mandamer, says that it comes from the Psukim in the Torah and Parsha Shoftim that says, you shall not in any way stray from anything the rabbis say to you. There's actually another Pusik there quoted as well, But clearly, it is, as you said, Yitzchak, in the name of the great Maral, the holiday that really was established totally and completely by the rabbinic sages and following that would be in a way uh, the ultimate will of God is to follow what it is the rabbis have set down for us. And it's interesting, of course, it's like that generally it's interpreted to mean, and we'll talk about it a little bit later, when the rabbis tell us what it is the Torah means, when the rabbis tell us what does it mean you know, woven linen blends. What does the Torah mean when it, that one cannot eat the fat of a certain animal or the blood of a certain animal? And the rabbis 
give us from their tradition or from their understanding of the verses, and we have to accept that. I think Ner Hanukkah is really something where the rabbis instituted this as something that needs to have a special place in our calendar, and therefore we we light it and, and we celebrate it as, as Yitzchak is saying, as, as the holiday of the rabbinical holiday. Uh, interesting, Yitzchak, how, you know, we talked about it, I think, in previous discussions, how, you know, Hanukkah has, you know, punches above its weight vis-a-vis the, the Gentile world, right? And, and maybe that has to do with Christmas and... Well, I, I, I always say, for carrots, I say Hanukkah. And I, I remember in, in high school telling my my very <laughs> beloved Rebbe, Rabbi Moshe Weinberger, that, oh, Hanukkah is just a minor holiday. And he was very angry. He said, no, it's a, it's a major holiday just because it's just because it's rabbinical in nature doesn't mean that it's minor. We say Hallel. We say well, there's Kriyasitar every day. It is a major holiday. I, I like to say it's a major holiday in a minor key. Mm-hmm. And I always like to say over from, I think a lot of the tzaddikim bring that all the Kol Shmanim and Cholop Silas Sherem when they're Hanukkah, there's something the Edsim in Hanukkah that excites every Eid. It's not because of the Goyesha holidays. It's for care. It's because of something the etzim of Hanukkah, and the truth is, uh, it, according to the Christian scriptures, there's no mention of a holiday of Christmas, but there is a mention of a feast of dedication in the uh, Apocrypha. Is, is the Apocrypha, the Book of Maccabees, is the Book of... Right, so that, that would be another place, I guess, for antiquarians to to delve into the provenance and the significance of the five, I think there are five books of the Maccabees, I believe, which, of course represents, although it's not necessarily a concurrent report, but very much closer uh, to the time and the events that occurred there. And again, once again, Hanukkah gives rise to a lot of antiquarian research in terms of the exact nature of the events that led uh, to the victory over the Seleucid Greeks. Uh, I, I should also mention this regard as we sort of like move towards what we want to really talk about tonight, just to give Hanukkah its due. I saw a very interesting take on Hanukkah guilt, you know, the idea of of, of giving money that, uh, although I guess with Bitcoin and and with things today, it's going to be hard to to fulfill that, that part of it might actually be the, the coinage itself being significant. The fact that archaeological discoveries done in the land of, in Eretz Yisrael have discovered a coinage that, stems from that period and even earlier. And in many ways, it's a time to really think about those coins which are stamped by the mark of an independent Jewish state, including the the state that arose after the the Greeks were expelled. And in that way, sort of even Hanukkah Geld, if you use the money as a a way to speak about the advancements of that, that, that country, like the, which the Rambam says, had independence for 200 years, it's a good entrance way to to think about what Jewish independence meant, uh, despite the fact that the rulers didn't always live up to the high standards that we expected. So I think Hanukkah is, is a lot of room for antiquarian stuff in Hanukkah. But I, I do want to really talk about the idea of rabbinic authority. And I want to start from a sort of a, a strange place, which is a play that was written by Herman Wouk. 
Now, now Herman Wouk really uh, lived to be 104 years old, I believe, and was quite active in his writing and his discussions. It seems from all reports that he lived a long and, and fruitful life. In 1951, he was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for the best-selling novel, The Cane Mutiny. Now, this was based on his own experiences in World War II, being a uh, an officer on a minesweeper, which, of course, was what the cane was. In fact, I think he was on a a ship called the Zane, so obviously, you know, things were in his in his head. Like most authors, you write what you know. He wrote about life on the sea, but specifically about a mutiny that occurred when a by the books, but sort of neurotic uh, captain took over the this ship. Uh, the ship had been resting as a secondary significant ship as the the main um, those minesweepers were actually retrofitted from World War One. The higher class ships, the ones that the Navy was using to really engage uh, the enemy, uh, whether it was you know on the Japanese front or or otherwise, uh, were were more modern ships. The minesweepers were sort of the ones who were protecting those and had an important role. But as in Herman Wouk's book, the crew of the Kane sort of saw themselves in a slovenly way when the captain, the new captain, arrives, Captain Quig. He wants to put the ship in order, but it's clear that there's another streak about him that isn't just the idea of being organized, but also to the point of being uh, paranoid about people questioning his power. He is clearly someone who perhaps has passed his prime, but still doesn't want to give up on his control. And he doesn't do much to ingratiate himself with the other officers on the ship, including the the POV, the Captain Lewis Keith, who is sort of like the the young man who sort of represents Herman Wook in this in this story. During a typhoon, which actually did occur that Wook experienced, the ship was foundering and was going in the wrong direction. And because of the buildup of a number of incidents that had preceded that typhoon, the first officer on the ship, Captain Merrick, uh, took control and a mutiny occurred where the captain was relieved of his duty because he was endangering the ship and the lives of the crew. Now, the book, of course, doesn't stop there because as the ship goes into harbor, uh, the captain informs the authorities that a mutiny has occurred and an investigation happens. And the latter part of the book is the trial, the court-martial of Marek. And it is in this court-martial that the book you know, uh, draws out uh, many of the issues of allegiance and f missteps that might have occurred. The book is, is, is like many great books that came out of World War II, lives in shades of gray. And in many ways, you know, Norman Mailer's The Naked and the Dead, uh, James Jones's From Here to Eternity, Leon Uris's Battle Cry, 
these were books that were born from World War II veterans. And the Kane Mutiny shares that in the fact that there aren't necessarily black and white heroes and villains. The war, I think, in many ways, despite the righteousness of the American cause, most of the soldiers there experienced elements of good and evil. And these these novels that came out of World War II all had mixes of that. But as I said, the last part of the book is really very much a courtroom drama. So as the film rights to the book were purchased and a, a, a movie was being in production, Herman Wouk had the idea of writing a, a stage version just of the court-martial. And even before the film starring Humphrey Bogart and Van Johnson, Fred McMurray and Jose Ferrer came out, there was a play uh, in 1953 on Broadway that ran for a couple of hundred performances starring Henry Fonda and Lloyd Nolan, which was The Trial. And Kane Muni Court Martial has been a staple, Yitzhak, of a lot of high schools and small dinner theater productions because it doesn't need much. It doesn't need a lot of scenery. It basically, you know, uh, revolves in one room and, and of the trial. And it has been fodder for many mock trial teachers who have pointed to it, along with other uh, trial sort of centered plays. We, we mentioned a couple of them last week when we were talking about doing this program, like uh, Witness for the Prosecution, which is, of course, uh, a play that you told me that you actually were involved in. Uh, yeah, Agatha yeah. Christie's. I think that was and of course, um, yeah. and yeah. Inherit the Wind, which is also a staple in many, many high schools and uh, you know amateur productions. Uh, I think the same could be true about you know this production. Although I should, I mean, considering you know the you know it, it was clearly a significant uh, event on Broadway with, with Henry Fonda and Lloyd Nolan playing these parts. It's almost like it's like if you want to read the cliff notes of the, you know, the 500 or 600 page Kane Mutiny, you can just read the, you know, the 90 or 120 page play and you sort of get the basic story. When I first saw the film, although the the character of Captain Quig was played by Humphrey Bogart in, in one of his really last great performances, um, the, the the role that really, really attracted me and especially since my mother had always said, you know, you're going to be a lawyer, was the only ostensibly Jewish character in the film, Barney Greenwald, who was the lawyer who was defending Marek. Play and the, uh, the, the, as the book points out, that Greenwald's not happy really to defend him. And, and I think Greenwald represents, in many ways, the, another aspect of Herman Wouk. Even though Herman Wook's character is somehow represented by Willis Keith, who is sort of the young fellow who becomes, you know, finally gets an, you know, an officership on the ship. But the character who gives intellectual moral clarity is the defense attorney, Barney Greenwald, the, the Jew. And here is Barney questioning Captain Quig because the basic defense was that Quig had exhibited behaviors that were abnormal enough 
for them to believe that keeping him in control of the ship during this typhoon would, it was actually a danger. So Quig is his second time on the stand, and here is he being questioned by Greenwald. Captain, did you ever turn your ship upside down in a vain search for a key that did not exist? I don't know what lies have been sworn to in this court, but I'd like to set you straight on this matter right here and now. A key definitely did exist. May it please the court, the witness is understandably agitated by this ordeal, and I request a recess to give him a brief I don't space. want a recess. Okay, I should just tell you here that um, Jose Ferrer is the in Jew face playing Barney Greenwald. The prosecuting attorney who is prosecuting uh, Marrick, played by Van Johnson, is a fellow who in the early 60s had made a career of playing a lawyer, and that was E.G. Marshall, who you might have heard of Yitzchak. So E.G. Marshall plays the prosecuting attorney who has now objected, and Bogey is Captain Quig. Now, again, the, they have brought up the fact that he had turned the ship over because he was sure that the strawberries that were meant for the officers had been stolen, and the way they had been stolen is that someone on the ship had skeleton keys or had made duplicate keys in a way that was a danger to the officers. So here, here's the scene again. I'll answer all questions right here and now. Did you conduct such a search? Yes, I did. As usual, my disloyal officers failed me and the key couldn't be found. As a matter of actual fact, wasn't this whole fuss over a quart of strawberries? The pilfering of food in large amounts or small is one of the most serious occurrences on board ship. Yes, but didn't you learn the mess boys had eaten the strawberries and that you were conducting a search for an imaginary key? I repeat, the key was not imaginary. And I don't know anything about mess boys eating strawberries. Captain, have you no recollection of a conversation with an Ensign Harding just prior to his leaving the cane? What about it? Well, didn't Ensign Harding tell you that the mess boys ate the strawberries? All that I remember is that he was very grateful for his transfer. His wife was ill in the States. Captain, do you know where Ensign Harding is now? Well, I have no way of knowing. Ensign Harding is in San Diego. His wife has fully recovered. He has already been summoned and can be flown up here in three hours, if necessary. Would it serve any useful purpose to have him testify? No, I... I don't see any need of that. Now that I recall, he... Uh... That little clicking that you're hearing is uh, an aspect which... I'm not sure if it was added for the film or if it was in the original novel that Quig, in order to sort of settle himself, you know, has sort of, there's people who have stress balls. He takes out these metal marbles, these little circular globes and rubs them in his hand when he sort of has to deal with stress. And you can, you know, Bogey takes them out of his pocket as he feels he's under attack. Yeah. He might have said something about mess boys and then again, he might not. I questioned so many men, and uh, Harding was not the most reliable officer. I'm afraid the defense has no other recourse than to produce Ensign Harding. Now, there's no need for that. I know exactly what he'll tell you. Lies. He was no different from any other officer in the wardroom. They were all disloyal. I tried to run the ship properly with a book, but they fought me at every turn. If the crew wanted to walk around with their shirt tails hanging out, that's all right. Let them. Take the tow line. Defective equipment. No more, no less. But they encouraged the crew to go around scoffing at me and spreading wild rumors about steaming in circles and, and, and then old Yellowstone. I was to blame for Lieutenant Merrick's incompetence and poor seamanship. Lieutenant Merrick was the perfect officer, but not 
Captain Quig. So this this refers to an incident where um, the ship clearly had cut its own tow line, which is sort of like stepping on on your foot when you're trying to do a pirouette and ballet. And they cut their own tow line because the captain had told them to go in a certain direction to turn the ship in one way. And of course, it ended up, you know, a, a quite an embarrassing thing. So the the captain earned the nickname Old Yellowstain because when you cut the tow line, you have to give an indicator to the other ships that are coming that the line has been cut, and you need to pour some sort of paint into the into the water so they'll recognize that. So he became known among the uh, crew and among the other members of the ship as Old Yellowstain. Of course, remember, they didn't like him anyway, Yitzchak, because he had tried to impose discipline uh, where they had been slovenly before. Ah, but the strawberries, that's that's where I had them. They laughed at me and made jokes, but I proved beyond the shadow of a doubt and with, with geometric logic that a duplicate key to the wardrobe ice box did exist. And I'd have produced that key if they hadn't pulled the cane out of action. Uh, I know now they were only trying to protect some fellow officer and... Okay, here the in, in the film and you know in the play as well, you have the stunned faces of 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 the court martial, where they are sort of like realizing that the person in front of them is not this put together commendable officer, but is someone who indeed fits exactly the bill of what he has been painted as before by the defense, and they are watching someone who has served the country, devolve in front of their eyes. So you, there's, there's various shots here of members of the court-martial looking at him and not being able to take their eyes off of him, but still being quite embarrassed by the display. Naturally, I, I can only cover these things from memory. If I've left anything out, why just ask me specific questions and I'll be glad to answer them one by one. Yes, so I don't know, Yitzchok, if you've ever seen that before, but... um, Very powerful, very... Right. Yes, 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 indeed. Now, what happens is, is that by indicating that, I'll use the Yiddish word, that he was over a bottle, indicating that indeed he was someone who everything that was said about him could be true, the officer is found not guilty of mutiny. And of course, which means that Quig forever will be known as, you know, the one ship in the whole United States history that was mutinied due to his aberrant behavior. Now, afterwards, a victory party is held and I've left out one character here, which is the character of Lieutenant Kiefer. Kiefer is educated. He's uh, someone who knows a lot about what we would call, it's say, pop psychology. He knows what's what's happening, and is is constantly writing. Is writing a book. He's sort of uh, the the most cynical about Quig, and he sort of has planted the the seeds of revolt. He's the one who has encouraged Marek. Uh, to keep a medical log. However, when Kiefer is called in the trial to defend Merrick, you know, Kiefer sort of acts in a way where he he really isn't that 
He, does, he wants to keep himself clean, sort of skirts the truth as much as possible. But it's clear that Kiefer is the brains and a cynical person. It's interesting, the, the filmmakers, uh, Edward Dimitrik, who uh, made a number of film noirs and, and, and other films, and this might have been you know one of his, his biggest films, Dimitrik cast Fred McMurray in this role. And, you know, Fred McMurray was someone who often uh, in Hollywood played just the good guy. And we talked about him, of course, in The Absent-Minded Professor and in My Three Sons and in so many films in the 30s. I mean, my, my wife would always though say what a double indemnity. She right. couldn't believe it's the same person, right. how evil he was in that. I, right. so, I, I've never seen that. Yes. Yeah, so, well, double indemnity is was Billy Wilder's hop to use Fred McMurray as sort of a bad guy, uh, as a duplicitous person. But, but he's sort of like an anti-hero in there, and you could sort of understand him. In, in other films, in the starting, I think, from the Kane Mutiny and then ending in The Apartment, he plays a very despicable character. At the victory party, Barney Greenwald is there to sort of be celebrated for his great questioning in the courtroom. But Barney has another message to give. Uh, to set the scene here, Barney... Uh, clearly drunk, shows up at the victory party. You know something? When I was studying law, and Mr. Kiefer here was writing his stories, and you, Willie, were tearing up the playing fields of dear old Princeton. Merrick was a ex-football player. Who was standing guard over this fat, dumb, happy country of ours, eh? Not us. Oh, no, we knew you couldn't make any money in the service. So who did the dirty work for us? Quig did, and a lot of other guys. Tough, sharp guys who didn't crack up like Quig. But no matter what, Captain Quig endangered the ship and the lives of the men. He didn't endanger anybody's life. You did, all of you. You're a fine bunch of officers. You said yourself he cracked. I'm glad you brought that up, Mr. Painter, because that's a very pretty point. You know, I left out one detail on the court-martial. Wouldn't have helped our case any. Tell me, Steve, after the Yellowstone business... Quig came to you guys for help, and you turned him down, didn't you? Yes, we did. You didn't approve his conduct as an officer. He wasn't worthy of your loyalty. So you turned on him. You ragged him. You made up songs about him. If you'd given Quig the loyalty he needed, do you suppose the whole issue would have come up in the typhoon? You're an honest man, Steve. I'm asking you. Do you think it would have been necessary for you to take over? It probably wouldn't have been necessary. Yeah. If that's true, then we were guilty. Ah, you're learning, Willie. You're learning that you don't work with the captain because you like the way he parts his hair. You work with him because he's got the job or you're no good. Well, the case is over. You're all safe. It was like shooting fish in a barrel. And now we come to the man who should have stood trial. The Kane's favorite author. The Shakespeare whose testimony nearly sunk us all. Tell him, Kiefer. No, you go ahead. You're telling it better. You ought to read his testimony. He never even heard of Captain Quig. Let's forget it, Barney. Quig was sick. He couldn't help himself. But you, you're real healthy. Only you didn't have one-tenth the guts that he had. Except I never fooled myself, Mr. Greenwald. I'm going to drink a toast to you, Mr. Kiefer. From the beginning, you hated the Navy. And then you thought of this whole idea. 
And you managed to keep your skirts nice and starched and clean, even in the court-martial. Steve Merrick will always be remembered as a mutineer. But you, you'll publish your novel, you'll make a million bucks, you marry a big movie star, and for the rest of your life you'll live with your conscience, if you have any. Now here's to the real author of The Cane Mutiny. Here's to you, Mr. Kiefer. And he throws the drink into Fred McMurray's face. If you want to do anything about it, I'll be outside. I'm a lot drunker than you are, so it'll be a fair fight. Yeah, so do you catch that, Yitzchok? Yeah, yeah. So I have to tell you that, that that scene almost got me to decide I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, you know, the the integrity of Greenwald, his understanding piercing through. And of course, this is, I think, is, is, is Wook's conscious message here. And it was interesting that, you know, that I had, of course, uh, read the play, read the book, seen the film. And then, Yitzchak, I heard a sheer from Rav Herschel Schechter uh, 30 years after I had seen the film, approximately. Perhaps it was 25 years later. Uh, Rav Herschel Schechter was giving a sheer, the Shiva of, of Yeshiva University. And he mentioned that Herman Wook had been his English teacher, that Herman Wook had actually taught creative writing and Rehearsal Schechter was in his class. Now, Herman Wook's connection to orthodoxy was very strong. Uh, he himself uh, credited his grandfather who taught him Gemara as someone who saved him intellectually. Um, despite the fact that Wook originally balked at the idea of, of learning an ancient text that didn't seem to have relevance but Wook's Talmud learning and his the models that he saw in his life really held fast to him. And he wrote one of the most important books, uh, probably the first important book for Bali Chuba, which was called This Is My God. And Wook uh, was invited uh, to be a, a, a visiting professor in Yeshiva University. And he taught these future Rabbonim Goinim. Now he told Herschel Schechter that, that he was inspired, not so much by his wartime experiences, what really inspired him was his learning. He had learned the Sifrei that Rashi quotes in Parshas Shoiftim. He had seen the Ramban there that made it clear that when what Chazal say, you listen to them, whether even though it seems that what they're telling you is left, you know, at least in your perception is right, or le- or they say it's right, and you think it's left, you follow them and go in their direction. And the Raman there says, yes, even to the point of doing an act and allowing a Vodazara act or killing someone, because you need to have the discipline that's necessary to follow the leaders, the human beings who are there to interpret texts, to align ideas, who are there to make the Torah alive, that it isn't just some sort of text that someone could just go to and decide that this is the way he wants to do things like the Wild West. Rather, the the, the Torah is dependent on a Sanhedrin. It's dependent on these interpreters and individuals must bow 
to their interpretation, which is decided. Because it's, because it's dependent on a Messorah. Without a Messorah, we have nothing. Correct. And and even though you are there when the Messorah is being constructed, you can't go out on your own. Otherwise, you damage not only your community, but you set a terrible example for the future. Yeah, and even even the Melech Yisrael, the Shola Melech, was, was, when, was Amalek, with Agag, and with, with Shmuel Navi. You know, he couldn't, he couldn't go against Shmuel Navi. Right, so when, when, you know, even a person granted absolute power, like a Melech, but he cannot go against, as you're saying, the, the virus. But here I think what Wuk was trying to say, and this is what Schechter pointed out, was that Quig was wrong. But the problem was that what was not entrenched in the military, though, despite the fact that Wuk served uh, and, and was proud of his service, was the idea that you, the fealty that is necessary, that the Torah really gives us this, this, this model of. Now, you know, when I heard this, I said, wow, you know, this is where the spiritual impetus of the Cain mutiny came from. You know, this is, this is what Barney Greenwald's speech was built on. And then Rav Schechter mentioned the fact that when he did further research on this, he discovered that the Ramban in the Sefer Mitzvah is something that Herman Wuk, his erudition did not reach that far. Uh, the Ramban in his Sefer Mitzvahs, in his critique on the Rambam's great work, Sefer Mitzvahs, the, the Ramban writes that even though it's true that we need to show this fealty, it's not fealty that needs to be given if you have not yet made your case cogently and intelligently to the powers that be. If you have, if you know that this authority of what they're saying is wrong in your own mind, you have you have no right to willfully follow them. But rather, you need to make the case and show them, explain to them why you believe that they are wrong. And if they then dismiss what you're saying, then you have to throw in the towel because of the uh, of the numbers, the numbers that have ruled against you, despite the fact that you believe you're correct. And Rav Shechter felt that this was an important element. The Torah isn't just talking about blindly every single person submitting themselves to rabbinic authority when they believe rabbinic authority has gone astray. They they need to recognize the significance of of that body, the Sanhedrin Agodal, the the body of that legislates and interprets and inserts. But if they have knowledge based on a tradition, or they are able to make the soundest of arguments, then they have a responsibility to the truth. First of all, to guard themselves from their own in their own personal behavior, and also to make their way to that august body and present the logic of their arguments. And although, you know, Wook would probably, you know, still say his message in the Cain mutiny is important, it was interesting for me to hear what Rav Schechter had found. I think all of this really, Yitzchak, is, is still quite relevant. Uh, you know, we, we live in a, in a period where, especially in the internet age, uh, so much is, is, is thrown out. There is so much discord. Uh, there is so much ridicule of pronouncements by, you know, Rabbonim. And it, it really is almost the Wild West, really, when it comes to fealty, to to authority, 
we are so cracked and so polarized that it, it almost seems naive uh, to speak about it. It, it. It's also the, the arrogance of, of ignorance that we have in our era. This past Shabbos, I was with a, someone who you know, and he was he he spoke at the Minion where I was, and he he said over what he remembers. I, I I forgot where he said he heard this in yeshiva. There was a Rebbe who got up and he said, "You know, you're not you're not Aristotle, you're not Socrates, you're not Plato. You know, you're just a pitcher. You're just you know you 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 know. And and who are you to be asked be asking these questions? And nowadays, everyone feels that they're all you know the the they're all able to." To ask any types of questions and, and not only ask the questions, but insist that they're right and insist on their way. And it's just, it, 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 we've fallen into such an anarchy in the world that it, it, we, we see the type of barbarism and the support for barbarism that we see in the world. It's really quite frightening. Right. And, and even if we don't, you know, zero in on the images of those pro Hamas uh, demonstrators and the the people who are lambasting anybody who's connected to Israel or Judaism, just the entitlement feeling that most generation Xers have. Um, there is a the millennials and the they there is a sense that you know they know better, and that really the tools of the the computer age allow them to to be armed in a way. That they could challenge, you know, any rov, any any type of authority, research and facts and fact checking, all of this really, it's like which is done by by hacks. We all know, just like Barney Greenwald says, that there is something to be said for experience. There's something to be said by towing the line uh, in those difficult times. There's something to to be understood that it isn't just about you know, honoring an old person and letting him live with dignity. It's recognizing the wisdom that comes from life experience, the wisdom in, in our world that comes from actual practical application of Torah principles. And I think, you know, as, as you say, you have these these fresh-faced individuals who believe that, you know, they what they're armed with allows them to challenge. And I think that this is really something that, that makes the you know the cane mutiny uh, a lesson. Our rub here, he tells a story. I don't know if he he tells it like he heard it. I think it might have actually happened to his own family. I'm not sure, but the way he tells the story was that there was a child who was diagnosed with the leukemia, and uh, they were about to start all kinds of very harsh treatments. And then they said, you know, we need a second opinion. And they went to a, an older doctor who was experienced. Just looked at the child for a few seconds and said, "This child does not have leukemia." He said, "Run the test again," and the, it, it came up positive again for leukemia. He said, "Run it again." I think he had to run it three times before it came back. You know, you're right. We made a mistake in how we were reading the whatever it was, and um, and he said, "You can only." He said, "The the, the side that would have gave all of these very dangerous treatments." Uh, chemotherapy and everything else to a healthy child that that's something you learn out of book but this you know to be able to to just look at someone and 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 make a diagnosis 
based on life experience, that only comes by sitting at the feet of a master and and receiving receiving a masora. Well, I can't think of any better way to code it to sort of say that yes, enjoy your Hanukkah, everyone, but recognize that the that the rabbinic leadership that stood at the forefront and 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 established this 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 day in the way they did, their descendants, their direct descendants stride among us and the respect and that we need to have for them is in a way really to honor uh, the holiday and to honor really God's ultimate will of bowing to those who know more and understand more. That's about it, my friends. So I think we've authenticated indeed the item. Be well, everybody. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please take a moment to share this or any of the many episodes available on our platform with friends in order to help grow our community. Until next time, Shalom. Shalom.